Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. I'll begin reading with verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, this evening I'd like for us just to look at a few passages of Scripture, basically that have to do with verse 24. Uh, I would like to comment again on the the last part of verse 23, against such there is no law. It seems to me that, that what Paul is saying there is, is simply, if you have the fruit of the Spirit, and these things that he lists are produced... There is no law that can censure love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The the law of God is simply not going to cut across those things. And I think that's what Paul is saying there. Against the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. Then he goes on and says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now this recalls uh, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. I'll begin reading with verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, But by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. I believe what Paul is saying here is, If we ourselves are also found sinners, while we seek to be justified by Christ, he has in mind what these Judaizers were trying to do, that alongside their belief in Christ, they wanted to erect the old covenant law and require its keeping. And uh, if they do that, then they're going to be found sinners because if you put yourself under the law, you're going to cut across the law, and be found a sinner. 
And he says, certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, in other words, uh, the thing that I destroyed would be uh, the law to which we died. Uh, there are passages that speak of the abolition of the law. And uh, I think this is what Paul has in mind here. If I build again those things that I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. And I believe that Paul is talking about the death of Christ is legally mine. I was identified with Christ in his death. When he died, forensically, legally, I died. And it is no longer I who live. Or his life is my life, legally. And then he goes on and says, but Christ lives in me. And Christ living in me, I think, would refer to the to the Holy Spirit who Christ sent in His place when He left. And it is because of the Holy Spirit that Christ, or through the Holy Spirit, that Christ lives in us. And the life which I now live in the flesh, so we still do live a life in the flesh, even though we've been crucified with Christ, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, we commonly think about uh, faith in Christ in connection with our initial trusting of Christ, our initial belief of Christ. But we know, and we should know this reflexively, we should know it when we look at our whole life, that day by day we have faith in Christ. And when we... Uh, when we come to the communion table, we are recalling what Christ did to us. We are believing and resting upon what Christ did for us. And this is a continual thing. And so we, we um, live continually on a day-by-day -day basis by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That initial faith doesn't stop. It keeps on. And we keep on resting in Him and having a greater and greater apprehension of what it means to rest in Him and what He did for us. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now, I, I refer back to that because of what Paul said in verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, the flesh has passions and desires. And when we died with Christ, then the passions and desires of the flesh are also affected. Now, let's look again at, at some more passages of Scripture. Second uh, Corinthians, I believe it is. Chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, 
that all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now what is Paul talking about here? If one died for all, well the one that died obviously is Christ. Who is the all that he died for? And this all that he died for, all died. Well, I do not believe that this means that all died in Adam. But I think that the all for whom Christ died, died in Christ. So what he's saying here is that Christ died for all. And the all that he died for, died in him. And he died for this all that those who live should live no longer for themselves. So he's talking about the, the elect. The all that he refers to here is those who have placed their faith in Christ. And it is because of our death and resurrection in Christ that we are constrained by the love of Christ. The life in him of us. And verse 15 presupposes our death with Him. This is the same thing that we find in Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 also has to do with a restraint on sin. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it. Now, I believe that died to sin refers exclusively to the believer's state before God. Not to their character or their conduct. It's a legal thing. But having died to sin, even though it's a judicial legal thing, Shall we live, continue to live in it? No. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. In other words, baptism pictures what happened when we were identified with him in his death on the cross and we were raised again from the dead in his resurrection. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So there is an analogy here between the resurrection of Christ and our current walk as believers. Now, we know that our current walk as believers, no matter how glorious it is and how much it relies upon the Holy Spirit within us, is still going to be imperfect. But one day, we're going to have the same resurrection bodies, or resurrection bodies that are like the resurrection body of Christ. And so that resurrection is going to be made complete. What we have now is the ability through the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. 
And that's what Paul is speaking of here. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life because just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so is our walk to be. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. So there is a connection here, you see, between what is legally ours in Christ, our identification with him in his death and his resurrection, and the here and now that we are to have materialized, and we are actually uh, uh, be realized in our life right now. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, and the implication here is we as believers do live in the Spirit, therefore, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, a different word is used here for walk than the term in verse 16, but the concept is is very closely uh, related to what's stated in verse uh, 16. Uh, literally, uh, in verse 25, it uh, means uh, a row or a line, or thus to line up with or be ordered by. So we're to line up with and be ordered by the Holy Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, then we should also line up with the Spirit. And notice the application of course, there's a lot of other applications as well, but the immediate application, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In other words, these are things that were on Paul's mind that the Galatians had probably been involved with that he knew about. Verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Uh, so, these things are not the type of thing that uh, is walking in the Spirit. That walking in the Spirit produces. Uh, the term conceited here means uh, self-glorification without cause. And I think we ought to think about that uh, maybe in isolation from the way we usually think of the word conceited because uh, conceited is such a uh, a loaded word. We never hear it used in a good sense. There is no good sense, is there? And if, if we're called conceited, then, then it's something bad and we don't want to be called conceited. We don't want to think of ourselves as conceited. But uh, I'm sure that for all of us, there are many times that we, without any real just cause, think of ourselves in a self-glorifying way, higher than we ought to think. 
And that becomes a source of provoking one another, and it goes along with envying one another. Now, I have another passage I want to direct your attention to. Oh, and I'm not really sure it has anything to do with what we've been talking about. <laughs> but, um, or, or, or at most, uh, tangentially has something to do with it. But it's a passage I read this morning and I was very much struck by it. And certainly it does have to do with the life of the believer and how he lives that life. And that is, uh, found in 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 12. The background, of course, is David and Bathsheba and David's murder of Uriah the Hittite. I, I, I told Joy uh, a day or two ago when I came to this in my daily readings, I, I don't like to read this story. I really don't. It's not a very uh, pleasant story to read. Uh, but in chapter 12, we come to the result. Well, actually, the sentence, the last sentence of chapter 11, that the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The New King James Version says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the little note here says that literally it states was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him. And then Nathan gives this parable about the poor man with the little ewe lamb and how he loved him and how the rich man uh, took the ewe lamb away from him and slaughtered it because he had a visitor. And uh, verse 5, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. And he goes on, Nathan goes on and, and delineates in detail in very harsh language the punishment that David's going to suffer. And we know that David did suffer these punishments. Uh, the thing that, that immediately leaps to mind is the rebellion of his own son against him. I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And at the close of this, in verse 13, after, after Nathan has finished his statement, uh, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, that's the easy thing to say. And we know people have said that sort of thing. That people have faked repentance when they didn't really repent. Uh, people have gone down in front of churches and said they repented when they didn't really repent. It's easy to say. And it's a very, very short statement. Look at Nathan's reply. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
However, because of by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed to his house. Now, the heading to Psalm 51 states that the psalm was written on the occasion of David being confronted by his sin, or with his sin by Nathan. And you only have to read that psalm to realize that this statement, I have sinned against the Lord, is a very concise statement, but it has a lot underneath it. David had a deep realization of his sin. And then if you look at Psalm 32, uh, you'll see the realization David had that the Lord also has put away his sin. David came to realize that God had graciously put away his sin. And one of the things that struck me after the little child that David loved died as God had told would happen, in verse 24, it states, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord, now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. What was the word that he sent? The word that he sent to David was, that the Lord loved this little child, Solomon. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, the thought that came to me when I was reading this was this. David recognized the awfulness of his sin. Now, you just ought to read Psalm 51. I'm not going to take the time to do it, but you read that and you see that he really did. But he also recognized the reality of God's forgiveness. Now, I think the reaction, the normal reaction, of most people that had realized their sin and was smitten by their sin, a terrible sin of adultery and murder, would be, I'm not going to have anything to do with this woman anymore. Just, you know, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about her. You know, get her out of my life. But David, I think, was able to go to his wife, comfort her over the death of the child, and go in and have normal marital relations with her, and then a child to be born, because he realized that he truly had been forgiven by God. His sin had actually been forgiven. Now, it's a great mystery to me, and I think to most people, <laughs> as to the relationship um, of the Holy Spirit to believers in the Old Testament versus the relationship of the Holy Spirit to believers in the New Testament. And we know that there was a relationship in the Old Testament, and we also know that there is a different and unique and more intimate relationship in the New Testament, so that in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, uh, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But it's clear that David did have the Holy Spirit in some way. 
and it's clear that God brought it home to him that he was truly forgiven. And the result of knowing that we are forgiven, of knowing the work of Christ on our behalf, of knowing the fact that, that we are the recipients of such huge mercy and grace, ought to be thankfulness and a desire to please God and to walk with God and to have fellowship with God and to, as Paul says here, walk in the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much for the marvelous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that has saved even wretches like us. And we praise You and thank You for the all-sufficient work of Christ on our behalf. In His name we pray. Amen.